Welcome to Episode 8 of Critical Care in Emergency Medicine, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians committed to board certification and democratic group practice. In this month's podcast, Dr. David Farsi, Chairman of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center, Miami Beach, interviews Dr. Nicholas Nielsen, an attending physician in critical care at Helsingborg Hospital in Sweden. In this episode, they will discuss an update of target temperature management after cardiac arrest. Good morning from sunny Florida. I am Dr. Farsi, your host of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Critical Care Podcast. Today's podcast will be an update on hypothermia, or should I say target temperature management after cardiac arrest. I would ask our listener to please refer to our previous podcast for further information on some of the trial we'll be talking about in this podcast. It is estimated that 400,000 Americans will have cardiac arrest each year. This number is actually underestimated since there is no national database for cardiac arrest. With 75% of those cardiac arrests occurring out of a hospital and 25% in the hospital. And there is about 7% of out of hospital cardiac arrests who will survive their hospital discharge and two-thirds of those will have the dreaded complication of an anoxic encephalopathy, and only one-third will be neurologically intact. Hypothermia has been, has been researched for many, many, many years. In 2002, two landmark studies were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Bernard and Hall, treatment of comatose survivor of out-of-hospital with induced hypothermia, who performed hypothermia in patient with VFib, VTAC, who had a return of spontaneous circulation for 12 hours. They induced hypothermia to a goal of 33 Celsius for 12 hours, as compared to the normal thermic group, which were also cooled to 37 degrees Celsius. They found that 20% of the normal thermic had good neurological outcome versus 35% in the hypothermic group. And when we say good neurological outcome, it's defined as a normal or minimal disability. In the same issue, the hypothermic after cardiac arrest study group, ACA, published mild hypothermia to improve the neurological outcome after cardiac arrest. This was the first large randomized prospective trial that that performed induced hypothermia in VFib and VTAC cardiac arrest patients with a return of spontaneous circulation to a goal of achieving hypothermia between 32 and 34 for 24 hours. They found 55% of the hypothermic patient had a good neurological outcome compared to 35% in the normal thermic group. This trial led the American Art Association in 2005 to make the induced hypothermia class 2A recommendation for patients with VFib cardiac arrest. And really an unknown class for the other group, PEA and asystole. 
And today I have the honor and great pleasure to be able to discuss the new trial, the target temperature management at 33 Celsius versus 36 after cardiac arrest, which was published in December of 2013 in New England Journal of Medicine with the lead author, Dr. Nicholas Nielsen. Dr. Nielsen is an attending in critical care in Sweden at, and I'm going to murder the Helsingborg Hospital, and we're currently chatting with him in from Sweden. So, Dr. Nielsen, thank you so much for having us. Is this a fair recap or introduction? Yes, uh, I might say so. Uh, I just uh, wanted to add one thing about uh, the survival rates for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Uh, uh, the the figure of seven percent is for actually for all cardiac arrests, uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, where an attempt to start resuscitation uh, is performed. Uh, when they reach hospital, the numbers actually sound a little bit better with the 50% survival of patients uh, coming to the ICU. So it's not that poor uh, in that respect. Uh, I mean, it's a terribly sick patient group and 50% is, is quite all right, I would say. And to, in, the, in the data that we have uh, found in registries, uh, actually 90% of the patients that uh, are discharged have a have a good neurological outcome. And I think that is important to think about as well. Correct. But in those in those groups, those are the patients that underwent target temperature management? Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, treated in intensive care units uh, for the last uh, 10 years. Great. So one of the first questions I'm going to start asking is, and I think it's in a lot of mind of community doctors, and again, emergency physician, not critical care, is should we abandon hypothermia? And I'm pretty sure I know what you're going to say. Yeah, I think uh, that is one of the large misconceptions with the TTM trial, that uh, you could interpret the results um, in a way to say that uh, hypothermia does not work. And the thing with the TTM trial was that we had a very active control in, in both uh, intervention arms. The 33 was uh, treated the way uh, these patients have been uh, treated uh, the last uh, decade after the landmark trials. Uh, but the other group, the 36 group, was uh, also mechanically ventilated, sedated, and uh, temperature-managed with the active control device systems. So it was actually two very uh, strictly controlled groups uh, treated in the similar way, but just a difference in the set temperature on the, on the devices uh, giving the temperature. So you cannot uh, say that uh, hypothermia does not work as a concept or targeted temperature management does not work as a concept as a result of the TGM trial. But on the other hand, as we did not have a control group with no intervention at all in the TGM trial, I don't think that the TGM trial really adds to the, to the evidence that uh, hypothermia or temperature control really is beneficial. Then you have to go back to the Bernard and the Hawker trial because those are the only ones that have 
had uh, control groups. Correct. And I do want to point to our audience that in the ACA trial, the, the normal thermic group, the average temperature was 37.8, which is actually febrile. And what I've been teaching to my attendings and to our residents is I believe it's the fever that's causing the damage. Yes, uh, th that was one of the, um, the questions that the authors of the Hakka group uh, got after the publication. The, the effect that you show in this trial, was that an uh, effect of hypothermia or an effect of avoiding fever? And uh, with the design of the Hakka trial, that was um, perfect uh, in a sense because it really uh, compared current practice with hypothermia. Uh, they could not answer that question, and that was so. That's what, one of the questions that we wanted to to ask with the uh, TTM trial was: was thirty three really the perfect temperature, or was it avoiding fever that was the the key to to have a good outcome? And as we as we pointed out with the TTM trial, there was no difference between those groups. Correct, no difference, uh, and again, so. Something very important in the TTM trial that I think people need to also realize a big difference is you started rewarming after 72 hours of target temperature management, correct? Uh, no, actually we, uh, we had a total uh, intervention period of 36 hours. So we had 28 hours until we started rewarming. And then we had rewarming during eight hours until we reached uh, 37 degrees. But then we continued to control fever according to the treating physicians for patients that remained unconscious. Uh, those who woke up after the intervention period, we did not uh, continue to treat fever in those patients. But for the others, uh, those who remained comatose, we continued with that using feedback control devices or pharmaceuticals or other ways of lowering fever until 72 hours. So the intervention period with the difference between the groups, that was for the first 36 hours. Correct. That's, that's what I meant to say. I meant to say that once the patient underwent the entire trial, you continued fever control for 72 hours, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And in... All your patients, you deeply sedated them and paralyzed them? Yes, we, uh, we uh, had all patients uh, sedated for a minimum of uh, the first 36 hours. Uh, and then we tapered sedation and uh, uh, saw if the patients woke up. Um, paralysis was uh, used at the discretion of the physicians uh, when they needed it. That depends a little bit on your sedation protocol and other ways of uh, trying to avoid shivering. But so, th so that was up to the, to the individual site. And so when did the, the physician started to prognosticate or would say check neurological status after the complete 36 hours? Yeah, of course. I mean, the prognostication should, uh, of course, be a continuous process. But we had in our protocol a time frame of uh, five days, uh, four to five days, 108 hours uh, after the cardiac arrest. 
before prognostication should be performed, four and a half uh, to five days, uh, unless uh, a few criteria were met. For instance, the combinations of uh, myoclonus status with a negative somatosensory evoked potential, that group, we, they could be uh, prognosticated earlier. So, but that is uh, clearly described in the in the protocol article of the TTM trial and in the supplement of the TTM trial. Um, but otherwise, we waited four and a half to five days before we uh, decided on a future level of um, of care. Okay, great. And enrollment of your patient happen in the pre-hospital setting? No, uh, actually not pre-hospital. Uh, it was when the patient was admitted to the emergency department. So out-of-hospital uh, cardiac arrest patients admitted to the emergency department uh, were eligible. If they had stable ROSC, which meant 20 minutes of uninterrupted spontaneous circulation, and that they were comatose and adult. So we had no pre-hospital phase in the TTM trial. And do you have a time, I was trying to look in the supplement, is there, I see the, in the exclusion criteria, if four hours or more after ROS had happened, that was the exclusion criteria. Yeah, that was based on our previous findings from register materials that we could not uh, find an association between uh, start of therapeutic hypothermia and and outcome up until four hours. So we said not later than four hours, but as soon as possible. And this is actually a number that we have not published in the in the main article. It's available in critical care in a commentary that we published last year. But uh, it's 135 minutes uh, in median from cardiac arrest until uh, randomization and start of intervention. Another, and these, again, we're talking to an audience of uh, emergency physician or not intensivist or critical care doctors per se, but do practice critical care every day. And so some of the basic concepts, I think, are important for them to know. So one of the big fears is, you know, cooling. You know, I tell everybody, cooling, cool as fast as possible. Uh, do you have an average time it took to reach your goal temperature from the moment you started? Yes, based on what we know from animal literature, it seems reasonable that faster cooling is better. Unfortunately, there is no uh, human data that uh, supports that uh, statement, but we asked all the sites to to get to the target temperature as soon as possible in the 33 group. And um, you can easily see that in the, in the graph um, of the TTM trial uh, publication in, in New England, that we came below 34 degrees, which uh, is the upper level of the recommended uh, temperature range in, in guidelines, after approximately four hours, um, which is very much in line with uh, registered data that we've seen before, that it's about the time it takes to, to get down to, to that temperature if you use the concept of starting hypothermia uh, when the patient arrives in the hospital and use ice-cold fluids and uh, whatever means. We published 
a small, very small, 14-patient-only poster uh, last year where we found that it took us, on average, uh, six to eight hours. So we're almost, you know, six to eight hours to, to achieve target, and that was target of 33 at that time. So I'm seeing when you, you I mean, your group, three, to, three and a half hours, four, four hours reach target temperature. Um, but again, I guess what I'm trying to say is there is no physiological changes. You can cool as fast. And the reason those patients don't cool as fast is generally because we're under detecting either shiver, shivering uh, and we're not controlling the shivering aspect. So, Yeah, that, that is, of course, a problem. Uh, I know that most sites would give uh, deep sedation and muscle relaxation during the cooling phase to avoid this problem. But of course, we know that from, from uh, other publications that, that the group that is hardest to, to get down to target fast is the group that is younger and healthier and probably have more uh, feedback control in their brains preserved. Uh, for the ones that are very, very uh, ischemically injured with a, with a loss of control, hypothalamic feedback, they are much easier to cool. So it's always um, a problem to see what is really the association between speed of cooling and uh, final outcome because it's, it's much easier to cool a patient that is very, very sick. Correct. Um, and I think I would like to see a, either a paper or a trial because I think there's going to be some correlation with the speed of cooling and the recovery or the prognostication uh, I think the patient is the easiest to cool or are doing uh, have the worst outcome. But yeah, I, I think there actually are uh, such uh, publications out there. So, but if you have a randomized trial, then you, of course, will try to reach the target as soon as uh, as possible. But as we've seen from the Kim trial in Seattle, there was no difference in uh, outcome when they started cooling already pre-hospitally and went down to to target much faster and, um, and started much earlier. Great. Another question is in the TTM trial, the one of the exclusion was a systole as the initial rhythm. What about PA arrest, other I mean, PA arrest, or did you just include VFib and VTAC? No, we, uh, we actually said uh, all rhythms. But first we said, before that in the inclusion list, uh, we had of cardiac cause. So we, it was only out-of-hospital cardiac arrests of a presumed cardiac cause uh, that were eligible. And with that said, we direct the group towards the shockable rhythms. But we also allowed non-shockable rhythms. The only group that we did not allow to be part of the trial uh, was a group with a systole and an unwitnessed arrest. Because that combination, if you have an unwitnessed assistant, that's a very, very dismal prognosis with almost zero survival rate. So we, we thought that group would not benefit from being in the trial. But we allowed assistant and PEA, and we had about 20% of those in the trial in the end. So we, hold on, I'm looking at my graph. So we cooled them as for four hours, we maintained them for 24 hours and you started rewarming at, t at 28 hours yeah right 
um, and rewarming happens slowly. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, how fast we should rewarm. Some people, it doesn't matter. Some people put the maximum rewarming rate at 0.5 Celsius per hour. And some machines, if you're using a machine, will rewarm at 0.36 per hour. What was the your maximum rewarming rate or the, the speed of rewarming? Yeah, we, we told the sites to uh, not warm faster than 0.5 degrees per hour. Uh, but if uh, in the end, when we measure, it's uh, about 0.35 uh, degrees per hour in the 33 group. So it was a reasonably well-maintained rewarming rate. It's been a huge discussion if you should rewarm even slower than that. There are no publications that I am aware of that have any strong data on this. It's probably like that if you cool for an extended period, like two days or three days, then you probably should rewarm slower. If you cool faster, then you probably can rewarm faster as well. That's just what I think. We have no data on it. Correct. Well, until this data, I think that's a good observation. Um, so another point that i kind of going to try to get across, um, and that's mainly for my uh, ICU residents, we cool the patient, the patient start rewarming, and again, controlling fever is really important until the patient start waking up. If they wake up, then forget about controlling fever. The question is, if the patient, let's say, patient is in a rewarming phase, it's been 36 hours, 38 hours, and the patient starts having fevers, and you're you know, trying fever management, and you're unable to achieve normal thermic, do you re-cool them, or do you just maintain them at 36? Uh, we actually, in our protocol, have them at 37, uh, and we use uh, those means that uh, we have available. So we use uh, the, the cooling machine, and we also give drugs and uh, try with the other kinds of physical cooling to, to avoid fever. But I must point out that the, this knowledge that fever really is detrimental is quite uh, poorly studied for both uh, traumatic brain injury, for uh, stroke, for, for cardiac arrest, hypoxic ischemic uh, damage. We believe that fever is de detrimental in this, in this uh, period, but we actually have no strong data that this is uh, the case. It might be that fever just is a marker of a severely injured brain. There are data coming from, from trials that are ongoing and there are also trials planned for both stroke and for traumatic brain injury. But I think uh, we, we probably should continue to, to treat fever in our daily practice, but I also think that it's, uh, it's an area where we can perform trials and that there is equipoise to, to do so. It's not an established truth in, in, my, in my view. So just to recap for the residents uh, and recap for myself to make sure I I understand, you're, you are recommending we continue TTM, but the data or the, uh, I should say, the belief that fever is bad, there's no data, we don't have any data and it's still an assumption. 
yeah, it's still an assumption. It's it's an association. We, it's an observation. You can see that high fever is associated with poorer outcome. But if that is an effect of the fever, or if it's an effect of the poor, the severely injured brain that gives the fever, that's not uh, established. But but uh, for the time being, I would definitely uh, recommend to to treat fever uh, in a neurologically uh, injured patients and I do it myself until we have more convincing information I still personally recommend target temperature management in the, in the cardiac arrest patients Absolutely. Uh, whether the goal you know whether people are want to choose 33 or 36 I think now we have clear evidence that you know 36 is as safe as 33. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I would definitely say so. Uh, it might be in the end that uh, we will uh, go for a tailored therapy that some patients should have one or the other. But for the time being, I think it's very fair to say that uh, it's uh, equally beneficial to, to treat that 33 or 36 degrees. Okay, I think we're about to reach the end of our podcast. Anything... In, do you want to add in departing words for our listeners? I think that what we've learned from over the last years is really good for the field. It's a little bit humbling that we didn't end up with knowledge that was the knowledge we had before the, these two large recent trials, the one from Kim in Seattle and, and our trial, uh, TTM trial. Um, and I think we should uh, continue to investigate this field systematically and that we should uh, appreciate that we're in the beginning of the learning curve in uh, temperature management. Correct. And again, as a last departing word, the TTM trial should not be misinterpreted to suggest that temperature target management does not work and is unnecessary. Uh, both form of the trials were active temperature management. It shows that there was no difference between 33 and 36. So, Dr. Nielsen, it's been a great honor, a great pleasure to actually speak with you. Thank uh, you. And thank you very much. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. For more information about AAEM, please visit our website, www.aaem.org. While you're there, be sure to check out the AAEM blog, part of AAEM Connect, where you can leave comments and engage in a conversation around the issues discussed in this podcast. Join us again next month as Dr. Farsi will discuss more issues of importance for emergency physicians. And join us this April in sunny Southern Florida for the fourth annual Florida chapter of AAEM Scientific Assembly, April 25th through 26th at the Grand Beach Hotel Surfside. Registration is now open. Visit www.flaaem.org.